Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Counterpoints. We still do not have intro music. We promise <laughs> we're going to get on that very soon. Should we set a deadline? No. No, let's not <laughs> set a deadline. Pressure. We'll miss the deadline. It's we're, too much we're pressure. Def- we're definitely going to do it. I'm, you know, I'm Ryan Grimm. This is Emily Jashinsky. We've got a lot to get into. That's right. Uh, we got uh, war in Ukraine expanding. But first, uh, in Georgia, the end of the midterms is coming. And potentially, maybe, I'm curious for your take on this, the end of an era uh, let's let's put up a one here. Uh, Raphael Warnock is is heading into today with a you know a small but significant polling lead, right. but also more importantly, uh, with more than a million votes banked so far in Georgia, uh, a significant lead among those votes. We don't know how those people voted, but we know what party they're in, and so and we can we'll talk about this later. Uh, 52% of the votes in so far are Democrats, 39% are Republicans, the rest independents, and we know in the polls he's winning independents, which means Herschel Walker on election day would have to win that day's turnout by something like 17%. And if you so. look if you look at the polls, um, this is just polls as of Monday, Warnock plus five, Warnock plus five, Warnock plus three, Warnock plus four, Warnock plus five, Warnock plus two. If you go to post from Friday, Warnock plus four, Warnock plus three. I'm not seeing we'll any- a two here. Not since November 7th am I seeing a poll that has Herschel Walker in the lead on RCP's right. aggregation. Right, and as a result, uh, Larry Sabato's crystal ball moved it over to lean Democrat. Now, polls are often wrong, and but what you wanna do is you wanna combine the polling data that you get with other inputs. And one of those inputs being votes that have already been cast, and yeah. all, another being uh, rally sizes, all the intangibles. Uh, you're, and you're not, you know, this, this is something conservatives have been frustrated with Walker about, right? He kind of took off, like there's only a month of the runoff. 
But on a bunch of those weekends, he was just kind of MIA. Yeah, so, I mean, I, yes. And 1.9 million votes have already been cast, which is pretty shocking. That's a record for Georgia. They've had about 300,000 people voting early every day in recent days. I mean, that's just an Whatever Jim Crow 2.0 did, it did not manage to, like— Right. Stop people from voting. Well, and I believe Brian Kemp actually cut early voting days from 17 to 5, um, which, again, I mean, this is, we're talking about 1.9 million in, and just I want to give some perspective on those numbers because they're really shocking. Um, the total number of votes that were cast in the 2018 midterm and the 2022 midterm before the runoff was 3.948 and 3.961, respectively. So about 4 million votes cast. Mm -hmm. 2 million have already been cast early. In the 2021 runoff, there were four point, about 4.5 million votes cast. Yeah. Again, 2 million of those votes are already in. As you mentioned, Ryan, we have the polling, but we also have the breakdown of voters that have already come and cast their ballots. That number clearly favors Democrats by a margin of 52 to 39. So Herschel Walker um, was a, a Trump sort of uh, suggested candidate. Georgia Republicans, uh, some Georgia Republicans uh, in the party probably would have preferred someone else. Um, but <laughs> it looks like Herschel's going to lose. And what does this say about Trump? Like, does this, is this a Georgia-specific thing that, that Georgia is going to continue to be for however long a kind of a red state where Republicans are in control on the state level? They can gerrymander all of those state legislative seats. They can keep winning the governor's mansion. But on the federal level and on the presidential level, is, is it just becoming a blue state? Or is there something, uh, you know, more specific to Trump here? There's something more specific to Trump here, specifically if you look at Brian Kemp, the numbers that Brian mm -hmm. Kemp put up on election night. He beat Stacey Abrams, who I would consider a pretty bad candidate, um, by a healthy margin. He got 53.4% of the vote, 2.1 million votes. Stacey Abrams got 45, about 46% of the vote. That's a pretty healthy margin there, about seven points, easy victory, whereas Walker wouldn't even come. Right. Um, and, and so you could say that that's a candidate quality issue. You could say it's a, a Trump issue. I I think both of those questions are correct. Now, Kemp had fallen out of favor with Trump pretty famously over overturning Georgia's results in, in 2020. So it is, I think, very telling that somebody, Trump, uh, a very high profile um, Trump enemy, or mm -hmm. a Trump appointed enemy like <laughs> Brian Kemp, um, who we have an ad, I think, uh, from Kemp, uh, from Walker that shows Kemp giving his support. If, if that tells mm -hmm. you anything that's been running over the course of the midterms, um, he did well. Right. Oh, and if you want to put up A3, that's that's the website that has uh, the these early voting numbers. You can check it out yourself. It's targetearly.targetsmart.com. Dot com and it's a democratic data firm that is able to tell you know which which votes uh, have been cast and whether or not the that person is registered as a democrat independent or republican you can you can fiddle around with all the numbers on their on their site and but none of no, no, no amount of fiddling makes it any any better uh, for walker but so the numbers you're talking about that means that about 200,000 plus republicans went to the the polls on election day cast a ballot for kemp and then either voted for Warnock, mm -hmm. uh, a write-in, uh, a libertarian candidate, or uh, didn't vote at all. Just, Let, just, just left it blank. Right. And if, if you have a sizable enough number of those people, uh, does, is that a signal about Trump's 
kind of drag on the party nationally? Or is there is there something unique about Georgia because of his history there, of his fight with Kemp, his perfect phone call where he's like, I need 11, I don't care how you do it, just get me 11,000 votes, just get it done. And then the, the Ravensburger like leaks the audio of the phone call. He then, uh, you know, barnstorms the state practically for Democrats in the 21 runoff, uh, helping war both Warnock and Ossoff win. And I say, I say for Democrats because uh, A, he, he set up the $2,000 check fiasco uh, for Republicans. Mm -hmm. Like after they signed the $600 checks, Trump's like, hey, why don't you do 2,000? Mm -hmm. Democrats are like, great, do 2,000. And then Warnock and Ossoff ran on, make it 2,000. But then also he was telling everybody that, the, that it was rigged and there's no point in voting. So Trump did, did so much to hurt Georgia Republicans in 2020. Is he more toxic there? Or is he equally toxic around the country? And, that, and this, is gonna be, this is gonna be a drag on him, despite the fact that, let's be honest, he's still polling ahead of Ron DeSantis. He's, you know, he's still, or you know, not, not in, I guess not in every poll, but he's, he's still Trump. But yeah. how much of a drag is this on him? So if you look at the numbers, about 30% of people nationwide say they're more of Republican voters, say they're more loyal to Donald Trump than the Republican Party. And that number has actually shifted recently in favor of the Republican Party uh, and less in favor of Donald Trump. So that means the amount of people who say they're favorable to Donald Trump and not just the Republican Party uh, over the Republican Party has decreased, mm -hmm. while people who say they're, they're loyal to the party over Trump has changed. And so that is, a, I think, a really important thing to keep in mind because uh, there's this hardened faction of the electorate for, for very good reasons um, that supports Donald Trump and Donald Trump only, um, or Donald Trump above uh, the Republican Party. And that's a faction of the electorate that really matters. And I think that might be a faction of the electorate um, that doesn't go out and vote, let alone vote for, for Herschel Walker, because they just don't trust the results. So as opposed to it being that Trump is uniquely toxic in Georgia, I would say it's possible that um, you you just have Trump voters who don't trust the, don't trust mm -hmm. the election, um, even though Kemp ushered in those electoral reforms that were decried as Jim Eagle, Jim Crow 2.0. Right. You can go down the list. Um, it seems entirely possible to me that. Uh, Walker may be Walker's results may actually be a glimpse into that what happens when you have that uh, remaining faction of Trump voters who won't support Kemp and just won't vote, period. Mm -hmm. Like maybe they're right. just straight up. Maybe only up, Trump can get them out. Right, they're, exactly. And that's a problem for Republicans around the country um, because you can't run Dr. Oz in Erie County and expect mm -hmm. to win the same margins as Donald Trump with Dr. Oz. You can't do it. And so, again, for Republicans, it's about finding uh, that sweet spot that right now, it. Electorally, mathematically, Ron DeSantis has done it, um, but it's going to be difficult. I mean, I don't think you can run Brian Kemp for president. Uh, that's not going to be, I think, the ticket that a lot of people get behind. Um, so that's a sweet spot that's incredibly elusive. Uh, speaking of the Republican sweet spot, Glenn Youngkin did not campaign in Georgia, despite Republicans hoping that he would. Uh, does he come out of this? And we could, we could put up A4, um, which is which is the polling numbers that em Emily talked about? All those blues you see over there on the right are the polls coming in for uh, for Raphael Warnock, and and uh, obviously Youngkin has a five thirty eight dot com up on his toolbar there. So he you know he sees this and he's like, <laughs> yeah, no, what you know what Herschel? I think you're I think you're all right on your own. Not gonna not gonna come down there. So does he come out of this uh, looking 
better than he did ahead of time? Like, is that where, is, is that the analysis Republicans are going to come to? I think they're definitely looking at Youngkin and DeSantis um, as people who were able to uh, get that coalition together um, of what they saw, what they see as parents, sort of anti-woke independence, um, but not turn off people by being, uh, what does Biden say, ultra MAGA, hardcore mm-hmm. MAGA, whatever it yeah. is. Um, and that's sort of what people see it as, uh, although DeSantis is, has been pretty hardcore MAGA, even though there's right. been, uh, Trump has been attacking him recently. Um, but also another thing to keep in mind here, if we put A5 up, we're talking about $80 million that have been spent just in this runoff. That's a, a truly remarkable number, 79 million into airtime um, in the runoff, just unbelievable number. And people in Georgia right now are also debating what to do with their elections going forward because the runoff tacks on weeks to an exhausting election season and makes them spend, I think it's like $75 million in election costs for a runoff. Really? Yeah, state election costs. Oh, because of all the... Because you got to send the envelopes back out. It's a lot. Got the employees to count them again, and right. So that's yeah. another thing to to look for into the future. Um, and and I think we should go ahead and just for a taste of what that airtime has looked like, where that seventy nine million dollars, seventy nine million dollars in just a few weeks has gone. Uh, let's roll a couple of their ads. A couple ads from we'll, we'll roll an ad from Warnock and then from Walker, um, or maybe it's the other way around, and just get a taste uh, of what people in Georgia have been seeing. Let's roll. A6. Character is what you do when nobody's watching. Mm-hmm. And Warnock thought no one was watching when his ex-wife called police to report his abuse. And he's a great actor. And Warnock thought no one was watching when he evicted poor people from their homes. He really evicted for $119, $119. Treat me like Character is what you do. When nobody's watching, you find out who Reverend Warnock really is. I'm Herschel Walker and I approve this message. New details tonight about accusations that continue to follow Senate candidate Herschel Walker. Walker's ex-wife, Cindy Grossman, got a protective order against him. Her sister submitted an affidavit saying he stated unequivocally that he was going to shoot my sister, Cindy. Put the gun to my temple. He had the gun right to your head? What did he say? I'm going to blow your effing brains out. Over the years, two other women have accused the Senate candidate of threats. A woman telling police she was very frightened of Walker, making threats to her and having her house watched. In another incident, a police report shows a woman who was involved in a relationship with Walker said he told her that he was going to blow her head off. At one point, with a loaded pistol in his car, he admits he set out to kill a man over a trivial business dispute. Oh, yeah, I did want to kill her. Yeah, I did. He says he doesn't remember a lot of details of these. He may not, but I certainly do. Capping it off with Walker being like, yeah, I wanted to kill him. Yeah. I feel like the the first ad, which is the hit on Warnock, is so deeply undermined by the last three seconds, which is, I'm Herschel Walker. And I I (laughs) prove this message. (laughs) Because then you're like, oh, okay, well, if it's a question of character, you you could be like, hmm. Let me find out more about what happened with Warnock and his ex-wife. Let me see who I agree with or disagree with in, in this in this dispute. And then you're like, oh, but if it's a question of character between Walker and Warnock, you're, that that's not terrain that Republicans want to be fighting on. They want to say, forget character. What matters is how you're going to vote in the Senate and what your kind of political values are. Mm-hmm. Because if it's going to be on character, there aren't many people that would lose to 
Herschel Walker in Georgia. Well, I think it's fundamentally something that can also neutralize, though, the character question. I think that's probably part of the strategy here. And, and Herschel Walker is loved in Georgia by many, many people uh, just for his yeah. athletic he's career. A, he's an icon. He, for, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, I think a lot of people do admire champion athletes. Now, whether that means they want to put them in the Senate, um, if they seem to have other character issues that come out over the course of the campaign, I don't know. But it is one of those things that could potentially depress independent turnout for Warnock to say, hey, look, he's saying that he's going to be the, the man of integrity and character that gets into the office, and you have to block Herschel Walker from getting into the office. But if you think, hey, maybe these two guys are, are both kind of you know lame, maybe they're both losers, then maybe you stay home. And, and what's another interesting thing is just in this $80 million runoff has been nasty. Uh, basically what you noticed in both of those ads, um, and, and this had come out before just the runoff, but allegations of domestic abuse. Um, Warnock's ex-wife alleges that he ran over her foot with a car. Um, they're in a nasty custody battle, so he has problems with that as well. And there are many, many allegations of abuse against Herschel Walker. He said that he's had, had mental illness. He's actually copped to a lot of bad stuff that he's done in his past, which has been an interesting strategy. Um, but it, it's just really been a nasty one. And, and the Warnock one was an issue in the 2020 election. Uh, police the police report came out. Basically, there, there were he and his ex-wife were having a fight near the car. Right. You know, he backed the car up. She claims that the car ran over uh, her toe. The police said that they saw no evidence of any injuries, and so didn't do and so didn't do anything at the time. And I think that has that kind of helped Warnock put it behind him. And you know, no, nobody wants to say, well, uh, I almost drove, ran over my wife. Like you're like yeah. once you're. <laughs> You know, once you're in that, it's not good. But like I said, compared to uh, he put a gun to my temple and said he was going to pull the trigger, uh, and then him saying, "Yeah, I wanted to kill that guy," or and and multiple other women also saying that he had made these like severe traumatizing threats. Although the last thing I'll say, maybe we can pop um, A8 up on the screen. This is a quote from Herschel oh Walker. Oh God, so good. Um, he, he says he hasn't seen any lack of enthusiasm from voters. This is a quote from Politico. Uh, Walker said, they're not less motivated because they know right now that the House will be even so that they don't, so they don't want to understand what is happening right now. You get the House, you get the committees, you get all the committees even. They just stop things within there. So if we keep a track on Joe Biden, we're just going to keep a check on him. Walker said. Now, it sounds there like he thinks he's running for the House uh, or he's mixing up the words House and Senate. I don't know. But the point I was going to raise is there's a difference, I think, of in Warnock's contrast and Walker's contrast in that Herschel Walker <laughs> isn't running as, uh, you know, an erudite uh, statesman. Um, whereas Warnock is running as a sort of, I mean, he's running on his religious credentials. He is he's running. Reverend at Martin Luther King's church. I mean, it's. Right. Yeah. And so with Herschel Walker, it's like, yeah, it's, but it's all kind of baked into the cake. I mean, what are you going to say? He's, he's a football player um, and he is, you know, ha has had a checkered pass. Well, he'll tell you the same things. <laughs> right. And so this, so Friday, if, to pick up the thread we talked about there, he, audio emerges of him saying, "I, I live in te I live in Texas." <laughs> uh, he, he took a he took a homestead exemption in Texas. He talked he talked about uh, making the decision to run for Georgia's for for uh, the race. I was going to say Georgia Senate, but we're not. It's not obvious he knows he's running for Georgia Senate <laughs> to run in a campaign from his Texas home. And now you add to it that 
maybe he's misspeaking here, but the funny thing is, you're not sure. Like, you have to sit with the possibility that he thinks he's running for the house. Yeah. Like, you can't, you can't immediately rule it out. <laughs> and everybody watching that knows you can't immediately rule that out. And that's amazing. He might have been misspeaking. Maybe he thinks they're both called houses and he's going to the upper house and there's the lower house, something. But you're like, I'm not, I, I would not bet my life that he doesn't think he's running for the house. Also, it's, his point is also wrong, even on its own terms. Republicans already control the house. So one more seat in the house wouldn't actually yeah. help them. And Democrats have a majority in the Senate no matter what happens. That's what was race. confusing to me. <laughs> it's that it, there wasn't a, even you could take it most in the most charitable possible way, and it's still the logic didn't check out with reality. Yeah, <laughs> or didn't match up to reality. Uh, but you know, with Herschel Walker, it's it reminds me a lot. We were talking about this last week of the runoff between Roy Moore and Doug Jones, and and Roy Moore is a pretty different ball game. But in the respect that um, there are Republicans who are single life or single issue voters on pro life issues, um, there are Republicans who are single issue voters right now on basically wokeness issues, if, the, if that's what we're going to call it. Uh, and and what I would say is just. Basically, these people um, are mostly warm bodies anyway. <laughs> I think the public is like increasingly aware of that. Um, you know, someone is is just a robot who's going to vote uh, either the way the the sort of uh, anti McConnell people want them to vote, or the anti Schumer people, or the anti Pelosi people want them to vote, um, or they're going to vote down the line with McConnell, with right. Schumer, with Pelosi, with McCarthy. Um, and as, as long as you can determine which side of that they're on, you probably know what's going to happen and you just need them to pull the lever. <laughs> and la last point on this, these early voting numbers that you can fiddle around with, uh, it, it looks like Warnock is up probably 15 points like in, in the early vote to start. But if you look at youth vote, here's what's interesting. Youth vote, uh, 18 to 29, made up uh, almost 11% mm -hmm. of the electorate on election day, which which is a, a huge amount. Like what, that's well above what young what, what young people used to do, say 2014 and before. Uh, so far in the early vote, they're only 7.9%. Mm. And so there are two possibilities here. One, one, which is what I think, which is that young people procrastinate, and they also are they they're more likely to vote on election day if you only have a couple of weeks right. to vote, uh, or they're, they're going to go back to their 2014 kind of turnout levels and, and, young, and youth turnout will be way down. I don't think that's right. Uh, but if it's right, then Walker could be closer, closer. and, and right. maybe only lose by a couple of points. If youth turnout on Election Day, you know, surges and hits, uh, you know, hits what it was during the general election, 10.9 percent, you could see a significant Warnock win, which, mm -hmm. which would be kind of startling because... You know, he only won by 30,000 votes in the general election. Right. So, so how he, so fi finding a way to go from 30,000 to winning by several hundred thousand is, is difficult uh, in the same state a month apart, but uh, Walker may have figured it out. You know, it's interesting to kind of uh, hypothesize about what this race would have looked like had it been the determinative factor in control of the mm -hmm. Senate. Um, and, and again, it's not, and there's still $80 million that poured into right. it because obviously that vote is extremely important either way. But, uh, you know, when, when Republicans sort of realized what wasn't at stake in Georgia, it does seem like, and I saw a quote in Politico from a, a GOP guy down in Georgia saying, it's like everybody's just kind of hoping for the best right now, but you know, that's all you can do. <laughs> and it's so crazy to think that uh, 
And Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin only got a couple million bucks from mm-hmm. the party mm-hmm. uh, and lost by like 20,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And that's also a Senate seat. But again, that's we're looking at these numbers right now. Um, and I think you know, we don't have a poll that shows, a recent poll that shows Walker winning. Right. We have the early vote numbers that favor Democrats by a really sizable margin. Um, and, you know, the polling in the last, what, five plus years just really hasn't been great. So you never know. It's we'll raining see. in Georgia. Who knows how, who that favors? Polls close at seven, but uh, certainly here I think we're expecting a, a Warnock win. Yeah, and results should be in by nine, ten o'clock. We'll see. We'll be watching. Let's move on to Ukraine. There's a lot of news on this front. Uh, just in the last 24 hours, uh, we're going to start with a video of Vladimir Putin driving across the Crimea Bridge. This happened on Monday. Let's roll right now uh, B2, the video of, of Putin. The bridge was hit by a truck bomb on October 8th. This was a surprise visit from Putin. Now, on Monday also, uh, New York Times has this sentence in its report on what happened between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Quote, Ukraine executed its most brazen attack into Russian territory in the nine-month-old war on Monday, targeting two military bases hundreds of miles inside the country using unmanned drones, according to the Russian defense ministry and to a senior Ukrainian official. They got within 100 miles of Moscow with one of those. Brian, this is huge news. I think the New York Times is correct to say it's the most brazen attack into Russian territory. What did you make of the development yesterday? Uh, um, just uh, monster escalation, it seems like. To sh- for So wh- what Ukraine... Uh, what Ukraine did here is attacked the airfields uh, from which uh, Russia has been launching a lot of its attacks. Uh, you know what, what, I, what I would say are kind of illegal, you know, war crime attacks mm-hmm. on the kind of infrastructure, the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine heading into the winter, trying to plunge uh, the country into cold and darkness throughout this the long U- Ukrainian winter. And so they sent two, uh, drones to these two air bases, one of them Engels Airfield, I guess, after Frederick Engels, <laughs> um, the Soviet era name. I, it's near, I guess, the town of Engels. They didn't rename that. Um, although there's, there's, you know, there's still, still love for Engels over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a base in the south of Russia. Right. And so, and one of them was, what, 100 miles away uh, from Moscow. Russia claims that they were able to shoot down uh, the, the, that drone, uh, but that as it crashed, it ended up killing a couple of servicemen and 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 hitting like I think one aircraft. Yeah, two planes. Um, it, it had slightly damaged two planes. The fall of the Soviet-era jet drones. That's what the New York Times is reporting that Russia said were shot down. Um, slightly damaged two planes and according to Russia, killed three servicemen and wounded four others. And again, we're talking 300 miles from the Ukrainian border. Um, One of these is 100 miles from Moscow. You can see there in the New York Times headline, it says, deep into Russia, uh, deep in Russia. And I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, Ryan, the Putin video happening, I mean, that that visit happened earlier on Monday. Um, What do you make of both of these things happening on the same day? I thought Putin would use a horse, like ride a horse across the bridge. Isn't that <laughs> isn't that kind of his thing? No, I mean, so that's his that's his flex to try to like to try to assure the Russian 
public that uh, that this is not going backwards uh, for him. Uh, you know, he's he's also there was a, there were reports I think in the Post or the Times that he's you know that Putin is is building up bases in Mariupol, trying to you know trying to strength, strengthen his uh, his hold on key parts of Ukraine that they that they're currently occupying, even as they even as they see even as they lose ground elsewhere around the country. Uh, this this comes at the now I think it's a I think it's useful for de-escalation that Ukraine did not use kind of American weapons. Mm-hmm. If you if Ukraine had used I was like American too. drones or American weapons, uh, you'd have uh, you'd have Russia calling an attack an attack by NATO, yeah. and you and then who, who knows what what that response would be. I think it shows that Ukraine isn't really afraid of Russia escalating inside Ukraine, like Russia, and and that so. You know, Russia has played the card of human- humanitarian catastrophe by constantly attacking all all of these uh, all these power plants and other other civilian elements of infrastructure. Then they've kind of they don't long they don't have a threat that they're gonna you know go that much more brutal. Because at the beginning of the conflict, you kept hearing um, uh, people who were sympathetic to the Russian side saying, "Well, th- they they have gloves on still. Mm-hmm. That you know they could really be punishing Ukraine." And and they're not so far. So you you know don't do this or don't do that. Uh, now that they're trying to plunge, they're trying to freeze everybody to death over there. Then that takes away a, kind of a stick. So I guess Ukraine is in in a we don't have anything to lose uh, frame. Now the certainly they do. There are still nuclear yeah. weapons yeah. that <laughs> Russia holds, uh, and the world has plenty to lose in a. Uh, in a nuclear fireball, right. if if this continued to escalate, so it, uh, to me it shows the importance of actually getting this thing to the negotiating table because well, you don't you don't know any morning you could wake up with with somebody stepping over a line that can't that that can't be walked back. Right, absolutely. And on that note, actually, did you read the national interest story? We have a graphic of it. We have a tear sheet of it that we can put up right now. Um, it was about what a potential peace proposal might look like. Um, did you yeah, get a chance to take a No, what did you, so t- tell me about this. Well, basically what the sort of contours of a legitimate proposal being passed around might be. Um, and, and that is something that really should have been a conversation months and months and months and months ago. Um, obviously there are some people who have been talking about it for months and months and months, um, but, it's basically like seven-year waiting period for Ukraine to enter NATO, um, which you know that's I, that, that doesn't really solve any problems at all, actually. And it, it may be something that can uh, call off everyone calls off their dogs in the moment, um, but also you know I think this would necessarily involve ceding some territory to Russia, mm-hmm. uh, which is a non-starter for Zelensky for a lot of people in the American government, um, but it has to. I mean, you have to have something on the table in order to de-escalate. Right, and it, go, it goes back to this rhetoric where, where we've set Zelensky up, I think, to be humiliated in the way that the U.S. has consistently said uh, that, you know, Z- Zelensky and the Ukrainians are the ones that are, you know, fighting on behalf of and negotiating on behalf of Ukrainians, and the United States is just just here to help. Mm-hmm. Like, that, ha- that has been our posture the entire time, the United States, I, 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 maybe there's a time throughout 
our, our history where we have stuck by our word on something. I can't think of it offhand. Maybe, maybe somebody out there can, can find an example. Uh, but people who have relied on the word of the United States have consistently lost. And so the idea that an empire like the United States was ever going to indefinitely turn over uh, its, its foreign policy to a smaller country like Ukraine that it is, that it is, that is funding and backing in, the, in this war against Russia was, was always absurd. It, it's, a, it's a nice thought when, you know, sovereignty and self-determination, uh, th these are nice thoughts ever since Woodrow Wilson proposed them. <laughs> They've been lies ever since Woodrow Wilson proposed them. Every country who believed that Woodrow Wilson was serious about their own self-determination, yeah. uh, you know, paid the price. By, uh, of our betrayal, that, that the, they, these are words. The, these, are, these are not things that the United States is going to act on indefinitely. And so a peace deal, uh, it is not going to be only up to Ukraine. Yeah, and here's from National Interest. They say a proposal that's transmitted through a Ukrainian contact has been drawn up by, quote, some Western countries, which is a euphemism for the United States, they put in parentheses, and has been initially accepted by the Ukrainians. The cards on the table for Russia make interesting reading. In this agreement, there is a complete cessation of hostilities and a withdrawal of troops from Ukraine by Russia. Um, the thorny question of NATO will be postponed, and Ukraine will join after a minimum period of seven years. A hundred kilometers kilometer-wide security zone will run along the borders of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, and will be policed by six Western countries. Crimea will become a neutral area, and the Russian Navy would leave the Black Sea. They say there, um, in the national interest that has initially been accepted by the Ukrainians, uh, Crimea becoming a neutral area and a withdrawals, a, the withdrawal of troops from Ukraine, I just... I don't see Russia doing that. I don't see Crimea becoming a neutral area from the Ukrainian perspective. Uh, so the idea that that's sort of been initially accepted by Ukrainians is pretty surprising to me. And it, and then the question is, uh, or else what? Right. So if the if the United States, if let's say, hypothetically, the United States is offering some type of a deal like this, the question then, or what? Like what, what happens if Russia does not accept? The terms of this deal it says, you know, according to this, the Ukrainians are like, okay, we'll we'll take we'll take this, like something along the lines uh, along these lines will work. Uh, how much more support does the United States offer? And I, I don't know if we have the element for this here, uh, but the Washington Post is reporting this morning that uh, you know support that indefinite support for us, uh, for the war in Ukraine is is steadily fading mm -hmm. among the American public. Yeah. Now there might be enough support. Uh, to last long enough to get to a place uh, where, where Russia has to eventually capitulate, mm -hmm. and there might not. All, there also, there is a gap, a significant gap between kind of elite and Washington support for the war and public support for the war. And in that gap uh, is, is the kind of gap of our, of our democracy. Yeah. Like when it comes to foreign policy, the American public gets some say, like they get to sort of like offer an opinion, but they, but it's not democratically decided. Like foreign policy decisions are often bipartisan, uh, e even if one party would go slightly different direction than, than the other party. And so if the American public turns against the war, that doesn't mean that the war, war oh, support stops. Now, even, eventually, eventually the weight of opposition can work its way kind of through the, 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 
broken, rusty machinery of our democracy. But it, it, will t it takes many cycles. And to wrap up, I and mean, we started the segment with Putin driving over the Crimea Bridge, the Crimea Bridge. And national interests said, you know, this leaked peace deal, for what it's worth, is basically being rejected by Putin by the fact that he was continuing to bomb Ukrainian infrastructure. Um, and then Ukraine re retaliated, and Russia, by the way, retaliated back. So again, the, the idea that there's a, a plausible peace deal being circulated by both sides right now, I mean, it's very important to have terms on the table, period. But the idea that we are meaningfully close to an end, I think is uh, unfortunately, tragically uh, elusive at yeah. the moment. And you could at least say that calling Crimea neutral would be a win for Russia, because right, right, like, right now it's called officially legally Ukrainian territory that Russia has illegally annexed. And so if they move it back to neutral, then that, that's, that, that's arguably moving it in Russia's direction. That plus lack of prosecution, Maybe, maybe there's enough pressure on him that, that Putin can find some way to declare victory. Let's turn to uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the transcript of his interview with, who was it, the Missouri AG? He was, right? He's been deposed um, in a lawsuit brought by the AGs, the attorney generals of both. C1 here? Yeah, so this is both Louisiana and Missouri. They have a lawsuit against the federal government, also against the Biden administration for allegedly colluding with social media companies to suppress speech. Um, and they were, so Fauci was deposed, I believe last week, yesterday, the full transcript dropped and it is long. I think it makes Fauci uh, <laughs> did not look uh, great. This is A.G. Landry. He's saying um, in his press release, Fauci's recent deposition only confirmed what we already knew. Federal bureaucrats in collusion with social media companies watch and control not only what you think, but especially what you say. During no time in human history was this more obvious than during COVID-19, where social engineering tactics were used against the American public not to limit your exposure to a virus, but to limit your exposure to information that did not fit within a government-sanctioned narrative. And you can see if you read the full transcript, which is ex it's extremely long. He was deposed for a very long Almost time. Almost 500 pages or something. Yeah, it was an hours and hours of deposition on, on Fauci's behalf. Um, you can see, I mean, Fauci uses the term, I do not recall, the famous term, I do not recall, many, many, many times. <laughs> uh, he leans on that very, very heavily. Uh, I do not recall, I do not recall. And again, that's very common of people in <laughs> positions of power whenever they're deposed. The American public mm -hmm. is well aware of that. Um, and in a long deposition, you would imagine there would be some I do not recalls, but I want to put up the statement that we got from Justin Goodman um, with White Coat Waste Project. Uh, that's going to be, uh, yeah, let, let's pop that up on the screen because Justin, I reached out to him last night, White Coat Waste, we had him on the show a couple weeks back. They've been doing a lot of insanely good FOIA work um, that in a lot of what we know about what the government knew in the early days of the pandemic has come from them. So Justin immediately uh, gave the statement to us here at Counterpoints and said, what really jumped out at me from this uh, deposition is that in his in the deposition, Fauci definitively states at numerous points that it is, quote, impossible that the animal experiments that he funded in Wuhan could have sparked the pandemic. At the same time, he claims he, he's only vaguely familiar with the project he was funding there and that he barely knows the key pay players, including uh, some of these scientists and people may be familiar with Peter Daszak um, and EcoHealth Alliance. And Fauci, Justin says, cannot have it both ways. Hopefully the incoming House GOP majorities promise COVID origins investigation can refresh his memory and get the truth. All right, Ryan, 
I think that is a really big tension for Fauci. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the deposition, you can see him repeatedly saying, I'm vaguely familiar with DASAC. I'm vaguely familiar with the EcoHealth Alliance, but also is impossible. Impossible is what he's saying publicly, um, that the the animal research here created the pandemic. Uh, The one, my favorite part was that he also doesn't know how to pronounce DASAC. Yes. Which I still don't. I've been reporting on the guy for Two years. Let's just go with Dazak. Go with Dazak. <laughs> says uh, the the lawyer says, "How do you say his name if you know?" <laughs> and and uh, Fauci says, "I'm not sure. I think it's Dazak. I think yeah. so." But completely unhelpful transcript because it just spells the name. Like I need to go. <laughs> I need to go listen to the audio. Uh, and then he says, I, "We've met once or twice." But I don't know. But we may, we, like, I'm not sure if we've met. Uh, and then he says there's a picture of us at a scientific conference, He's, which, and he rightly says, like, look, that happens a lot. I meet hundreds of people at scientific yep. conferences. They're like, hey, it's Dr. Fauci. Let me get a picture. <laughs> they, they snap a selfie. Years long later, they might start a pandemic. And then now all of a sudden you're getting blamed for the pandemic because this yeah. person uh, snapped a selfie with you. But you're right that he consistently says, uh, yes, it's true that NIAID, you know, funded EcoHealth Alliance, but this particular Project? Did we fund that particular one? What you know? You know who knows? Well, and they also so get sure. into a ridiculous debate about gain of function, and this is something that you've covered a lot um, about Fauci and the medical establishment being very cagey about what the actual definition of gain of function is, because that might mean the grant that was given to Eco Health Alliance, a government grant given to Eco Health Alliance that might, would have had to have been mm-hmm. approved by Fauci. And he's saying in this deposition, it, was, it wasn't at, he doesn't think, he doesn't remember, but he doesn't think it was at his level. It may have been a deputy that it came across their desk, not his desk, something to that effect. Um, that the money was going to something that was intentionally gain of function. There had been a cessation of a federal cessation of gain of funding for gain of function research. Um, and he's basically concedes at one point in this deposition, you know, one of the terms in the grant could mean amplifying the uh, the virus. Certainly could. Yeah. And so I'll just read, I'll just read a little tiny bit of that. The, the lawyer says, so you refer to conditions under which such research uh, should be done when you're, gen- when you're generating potentially dangerous viruses. He's like, right. First of all, is that kind of research gen- generally referred to as gain-of-function research? And here, I'll just stops. Right. Gain-of-function, is this is Fauci, gain-of-function is a very potentially misleading terminology. Yes. And that was one of the reasons why several years ago, outside groups, not the NIH, made the determination that they would much more strictly define the guardrails of experiments that would require additional oversight and did away with the terminology gain of function because it can often be very confusing and misleading. So read between the lines of what he's saying there. The go- in order to stave off government regulation, these outside organizations said that they were going to self-regulate, mm-hmm. that they were going to police themselves, put up their own guardrails, and also, by the way, they were going to get rid of this pesky term uh, gain of function so that uh, if if somebody comes asking, like, are you doing gain-of-function research over here? Well, there is no such thing, really, as gain-of-function research, and we've put up all of these these guardrails. Right. Uh, and, and this is all of this giant debate is happening between 2012, 2013, 2014. Uh, Obama, to his great credit, uh, I didn't, even, I wasn't even following this at the time. Got clearly got a very good briefing on this issue, and was like, you know what, this looks dangerous, mm-hmm. and he paused all gain-of-function research. Not long after the pause was lifted, uh, I guess the Trump campaign comes in, uh, Trump Trump administration comes in, and Fauci, who has 40 years of bureaucratic knife-fighting experience, is like, oh, cool, new administration, 
new rules, I can get this lifted. To get it lifted, a couple years later, we have, we have a pandemic. That alone does not prove anything, but the, the timeline is frightening that if, if, if what is uh, alleged to have happened in the Wuhan lab did actually, uh, did actually spark the, the pandemic, it only took a couple of years mm-hmm. of this risky research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're still doing it, and we're doing it at a much greater clip around the world at this point. We hosted a few months back, I think it was over the summer, a debate between someone at MIT and someone at Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. on what gain of function is and if it's worth it. So I really, that was a, a very clarifying um, conversation. So if folks are interested in that, they can check it out. That was back at the Hill. Um, but it was fascinating to, to pit experts against each other because this is a question experts disagree on. Now, I think most of the public is probably in our camp run. That's like, this is, no, right. <laughs> stop. Yes, please, um, please. And please. so to, to Justin's point, the House GOP, now that we know they'll have the majority, McCarthy has said, he, he's told me, he's told other people that he absolutely will be investigating the origins of COVID. I think, though, that this deposition, which is hours long, hundreds of pages long, is a great glimpse into what that's going to look like if they put, if they try to get Fauci to testify. I don't think he has any fear of testifying. Mm-hmm. That's why he goes on every different show that'll have him. Um, people, you know, want, he, he wants to talk to people. People. He's arrogant to the point where he thinks he can explain a way that he can uh, basically talk through any of these questions. Um, so I, I don't know how productive it is to continue uh, the investigating, continue probing Fauci because he's he doesn't admit to anything. He says you know he'll he'll get into these. At one point, the <laughs> attorney uh, basically says you know stop going on tangents uh, in the deposition because it does seem to be an intentional sort of deflection technique where he's talking for really long time and, and going in different directions in order to uh, distract from one question or another. So if House Republicans want to get to the bottom of this, I know that Fauci is a headline grabber. Um, I doubt that Fauci himself is, that you're going to get any productive lines of inquiry out of Fauci himself at this point because he is ready to talk in circles around absolutely anyone without revealing pretty much anything. Right. So, uh, let's Let's move on to the Supreme Court. Big case, potentially a landmark case in front of the Supreme Court. Oral arguments happened yesterday in the 303 creative case, which I I really think could be a a landmark First Amendment case now that the balance of the court has shifted rightwards. Folks are expecting this to change what happened in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which a lot of people might remember. Um, Jack Phillips, he's a Colorado baker, ended up in the Supreme Court because uh, essentially he was uh, being compelled legally to create what he sees as art, um, which would be the the decoration of a cake, the baking of a cake, the decoration of a cake um, for causes like same-sex marriages that he didn't agree with. He said, I'll happily serve any customer, it doesn't matter, uh, race, sex, religion, sexual orientation, I will serve any customer. I can't create art that violates my values. So that ended up at the Supreme Court as to whether the government, um, for the sake of preventing discrimination, can compel him to do that. Lori Smith is now in front of the the Supreme Court. She's also from Colorado, um, and she's doing the same thing, basically. She's a graphic designer, a website designer. Um, So she's saying she doesn't want to create wedding websites uh, for same-sex couples, and Colorado has that protective anti-discrimination law. That's what uh, got Jack Phillips, ended up having the court case of Jack Phillips and Masterpiece in the first place because of Colorado law. Um, Ryan, I- So so what was the precise result of the cake, the wedding cake It keeps going back and forth. Was Um, was the cake maker told that, because 
the law, I know the law was upheld, but there was some carve out for the cake maker yes. or something? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's, it's not a clean cut. And that's what the right is hoping for in 303 Creative, um, that you would have a clean cut protection of conscience in this case. Conscience so basically they carved out, they're like, all right, you don't have to make this particular cake. Yeah, it, it was. And but he everybody can, else has to follow the law. And Jack Phillips continues to get sued um, to do the same thing, to make the same types of cakes. And so it's one of those things where the right is hoping that there can be a more clear cut protection um, in this case. And, you know, the, the oral arguments yesterday were interesting. Uh, Ryan, we both had a similar reaction just looking at some of this stuff as it goes down. Let's actually put, uh, let, let's play the SOT D2 because we get the audio clips from the oral arguments, which is always fun. Um, so here's one from yesterday. Uh, in light of what Justice Kennedy wrote in Obergefell about uh, honorable people who object to same-sex marriage, do you think it's fair to equate opposition to same-sex marriage with opposition to interracial marriage? Yes, because in how the law applies, not in, in the discussion uh, with folks, because, of course, honorable people have different views on this issue. Yeah, and there was a lot of back and forth uh, that went in some, some very strange hypotheticals were, were floated. Black, Black Santa? Yes, uh-huh. and it went in, the, that was, you were hearing the voice of the Colorado Solicitor General, Eric Olson, um, who, who was defending the comparison of um, race and sexual orientation. A lot of justices pushed him on that note. Um, and the, the people who analyze courts and analyze these oral arguments seemed to think it was pretty clear uh, where this decision was going to go, uh, mm-hmm. which was uh, favoring Lori Smith. Um, what, did, what did you make of what we heard from it, the court? It, I mean, it does seem like th- they've got the votes and they're going to they're gonna try to ram this through. It, it, the question will be how, how wide or narrow it is. But let's be clear here about what Lori Smith is asking for. Nobody has come to her and asked her to make a, a website for a same-sex marriage. Like, that hasn't happened mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. And she's... It, it seems like she wants to make one of these uh, sites where basically you fill in your name, your date, like when, you're, when your wedding is, you, you can upload your photos. Like you're, you're basically the one do, that's doing the designing, but you know, she'll like make the fonts and the, like the pretty part in the background. And she wants to put up on, she hasn't built this yet. She wants to build it. She's, she wants to put up on her site that uh, you know, same-sex marriages need not apply. Like you can't, it need not try to do business at her shop. Like this is only for opposite sex couples. Like she wants to, she wants to be able to put that on her website rather than um, ha- somebody having walked through the door and said, "Hey, we we we'd like a website." Uh, and so that takes it. That that I think is w- is where the landmark element comes in because if if she can do that, then why can't Facebook do that. Why can't Twitter do that? Why can't uh, you know any other you know, private company say that we don't believe we don't we don't allow same-sex couples to use our services? But that's not what she's. I mean, she she will serve any same-sex couple. She won't make a website for a same-sex wedding. She she won't make a website that is specifically for the act of a wedding. And I would think. But that's her. That's what her business is going to be. 
Right, right, right. But that doesn't mean she wouldn't. Right. So, but the, it's the marriage itself. That doesn't mean that like she wouldn't design a website. Or and it's the same thing with Jack Phillips. He, it's not that he wouldn't make a cake um, or decorate a cake for somebody's birthday, whatever their sexual orientation happened to be, or whatever their race or sex or whatever it was. Um, they they will still be served. They they happily will be served by the business. Um, but the the wedding itself if it violates your religious values and that's why i think this case is so interesting because this is a really fundamental question about the first amendment and you're right that like i actually talked to her a few months back and that was one of the things that i was i was getting at is you know what what is taking this to court you know where where is this going and, and why and the jack phillips case was it really did shake a lot of christians in colorado who said we're we're just trying to operate businesses here um, and follow our values at the same time. And you've heard similar cases like this come up from um, Muslim businesses, from uh, Orthodox Jewish businesses, and it's becoming a real point of tension in society. And I think that's why a case like this and somebody like Lori Smith is saying, I want to, whatever you think of the motivation to seek the protection, people... The protection in and of itself is a pretty big tension point in the country right now. And it's the same one that that the kind of diner owners in North Carolina in the 1960s were using, right? It was that, that it was the, the First Amendment free, right of somebody who owns a lunch counter to just serve whoever they want to serve. Yeah, that's a, and that's that, the Barry Goldwater argument too, right. who was very involved with the NAACP, who was saying it's not the federal government's responsibility to determine how a business owner wants to right. discriminate, which we have obviously rejected um, with the Civil Rights Act and uh, in federal court since then. But that was the argument being made. I think, and I think, right, and so I think we, and the Supreme Court, I think, still believes that. I don't think even this six-three majority would say that no, actually a public accommodation like a diner can in fact, is free to discriminate based on, that, that, that's not speech. Like that doesn't count as speech. Yeah, as, you can't discriminate based on race. Right. Yeah. Uh, but can you discriminate based on sex, on sexuality? Well, and that's again where the Civil Rights Act is a, was always a really interesting test case for this because um, if somebody claims their religion is racist, Right, they outright say, my religion discriminates mm -hmm. based on race. Well, the federal government has stepped in and basically said, we don't care um, if your religion says that you should be discriminating and segregating. If you have a pro-segregationist uh, religious belief, you are not able to practice that as a business owner. In your private property, the federal government is stepping in. Now, I think that is a, a very, very reasonable, um, a, a very reasonable distinction. Now, in this case, what's happened is that our public opinion on same-sex marriage has shifted very, very quickly, and it's a, a similar sort of test point. Um, but at the at the same time, um, I think it's it's pretty much within the boundaries of you know the, she she has a position on same-sex marriage that Barack Obama had about ten years ago, literally and, ten and, years ago. And I think it's fine to say that businesses should be able to choose you know, what business they want to do. Like if somebody comes into a t-shirt shop and wants a pornographic t-shirt made, yeah. a t-shirt shop can be like, no, we like, we, that's, that's, not the, that's not the kind of thing that we do. Uh, or if it's a, a kind of one of the, if it's like, a, a, let's say it's a right-wing t-shirt shop, they shouldn't 
ha- they shouldn't have to make uh, you know uh, gun control mm-hmm. <laughs> t-shirts. Or yep. if it's a left-wing one, they shouldn't have to make um, you know AR-15 t-shirts. Like I I get that, uh, but to say that an entire class of people, which are you know gay people, um, are not entitled to use this product, I th- I think is is different now. Should, I don't think that you should, you know, force a poet to write a poem for a wedding that they don't that they don't support. I don't think you should force a a harpist to play it one. Like if if you're a uh, if you're if you're an artist, that's one thing. Uh, you you can you can pick and choose now. I, but Jack I, Phillips sees his work as although a I don't actually I don't think no. Uh, let me take let me take a harpist. And so does Lori. Let me take a harpist back. Like I think a harpist. Uh, if if you do wedding businesses, you should do all you should do all all wedding businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, within reason. If you if you're booked that day, you can't do it. Like you can you can turn down business, but to turn down business, well, no, I won't play harp at a at a gay marriage like that. That I think a gay wedding. I don't that I don't think uh, that I don't think is okay within the within the bounds. That's not that's not your speech. That's just a service. I, so I don't. But think, she sees it as her art, and then you get to this. But question she's already of, made. Like it's, but it's the like, government it's like a fill in the. It's like a fill in the the blanks website like i think she needs to get over herself with like whether this is her speech it's not her speech it's not her wedding it's their wedding it's their love like stop it's it's not you like so you're it's just your website you just agree that what she's doing in terms of website design is creative and that like, i think so but then yeah. the government is determining whether baking a cake is art um, when Jack Phillips, who's been doing this for decades, sees it as art, it's, he sees it as and he his, won his on that passion. grounds, right? Yeah, and then it, so again, this is the government coming in and drawing the line as to what constitutes art, what constitutes speech, what constitutes. Um, I mean, like I, I, all of these questions, I think are good ones to work out. But my colleague David Harsani wrote a decent question. Um, he was talking about. He, so he says. Uh, would Cole, who says the ACLU has been this nation's leading defender of free speech for more than a century, call for the state to intervene in the case of an evangelical customer who wants to compel a gay designer to create a website for an organization that wants to overturn same-sex marriage laws and preaches or preaches that acts of homosexuality are a mortal sin. And that's why, again, we get into this a lot with like evangelical Christians have a very particular cultural connotation right now, but uh, this happens to people that are not just evangelical Christians. It happens to uh, Muslims, it happens to Orthodox Jews, as we just were talking about. Um, and if the protections, I think, are not enshrined, it will happen uh, to, to other people, it will happen to people who are pro-LGBT and get pushed on this um, by people who are anti. And so I just think this protection in the the sort of broad, from the broader perspective um, is a worthwhile one. And I think the just this discussion is a testament to how interesting these questions are and how fundamental they are to the way we function as a country. And I wonder if, if the country can get to a place where though the War is so thoroughly won on on that question that if there are a couple businesses that don't want to do it, um, that that it, it that it doesn't you know hamper people's ability to get it done because you like throughout history there's always uh, there's always tension between between over, overreach and how how much you force people mm-hmm. along like if you take like. The French Revolution, where they basically just like annihilate the Catholic Church, like that ended up not working out so well for yeah. them, eventually. And so maybe <laughs> so if if they had, uh, you know, been a little bit more, if they had created more space as they did later in the in the Revolution, 
um, you know, for people who are like, look, I'm not against the revolution, but we just want to keep our priests. Yeah. They were eventually like, okay, you know what, that's fine. And that's a good point because I think we're basically, I actually think we're pretty much there. And that's been the case with Jack Phillips. It's definitely the case with Lori Smith. And it's definitely the case with Barry Merrill Stutzman up in Washington State, a florist. Um, there are plenty of options at the same price point in all of these places. What happens is these, uh, in, in some cases it's activists, are intentionally pushing the question and intentionally trying to get it to the courts. Um, to Which this one was, right? How do you mean? I Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this case basically from start to finish, yes. And yeah. um, again, we're working it out in the court. So, but to your point, you know, pending this decision, but I think the good news is, um, you know, customers can, can get the product that they're looking for at, at this stage in the country, regardless of where they fall on that question, there are people who will serve you. And I think it's hard for, but I think it's hard for people in particularly LGBTQ community to feel uh, to feel comfortable in their gains at this point because of the backsliding that they're that they're seeing from say like the from the Fox News world you get you're getting all of these kind of uh, drag queen story hour panics being built up um, and so I think it's like while from the right they they you guys look around and you're like you guys won what are you what are you what are you worried about you've got it just let us have our little web design company here mm -hmm. in peace. From their perspective, they're still under siege. And so, and when, when both sides feel under siege, it's really hard for uh, either to kind of reach a compromise, I think. Absolutely, and I think that's what we see when we get these kind of test cases uh, making their way through the court system. So we'll continue to follow this one for sure. On the question of uh, people coming to agreement, Perhaps your monologue today is going to get at something that people can come to agreement on. There we go. What's e your point today, e right? Ending this, ending this war in Yemen. So we can report today that Senator Bernie Sanders is planning to force a vote on a war powers resolution aimed at blocking U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen as soon as next week, he told my colleague at The Intercept, Dan Bogoslaw. An agreement for a ceasefire in Yemen between the Saudi-led alliance and the Houthis, who are backed by Iran, expired October 1st, though both sides have tenuously maintained that peace. Now, backers of a war powers resolution say that a strong vote in the Senate in the lame duck will send a signal to Saudi Arabia that it does not have a free hand to restart hostilities, despite the Biden administration's more placating posture amid its hunt for lower oil prices. Anti-war advocates had become a bit frustrated that Sanders had, un had until today not announced if and when he'd be moving forward with the vote, though it's fair to say that Sanders has been heavily occupied. He led the fight last week against, against forcing a contract on rail workers that they had democratically rejected, and he worked with House allies unsuccessfully to add seven sick days to it. He's also fighting the effort to add Senator Joe Manchin's energy permitting reform to the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, a vote would not take significant floor time, though, and anti-war advocates have been pushing him hard privately to move ahead with the vote. The news that he's finally doing so will surely hearten those who've been pressuring him. Now, a war powers resolution is, quote, privileged in the Senate, which means that the sponsor of it can bring it to the floor for a vote without the need for approval by the chamber's leadership once a certain amount of time has, has elapsed. At that point, the resolution has what we call ripened, and the one sponsored by Sanders is now ripe, meaning it can come to the floor. On Wednesday, 
A coalition of groups pushing to end the war in Yemen plan to release a letter to Congress calling for a war powers resolution vote during the lame duck. And today, the House Foreign Affairs Committee holds a hearing on the issue. The House version of the war powers resolution is sponsored by outgoing Representative Peter DeFazio, and it needs the support of Representative Jim McGovern to get through the House Rules Committee. It's much easier to move the House version once the Senate version passes, if it does. The war between Russia and Ukraine, though, in which the U.S. has been supporting Ukraine without a declaration of war may complicate the politics of the resolution because some of the language as applied to Yemen would appear to perhaps equally apply to the war in Ukraine, though of course Congress is never under any obligation to be consistent in their interpretation across countries. The resolution defines, quote, hostilities in a number of ways, including, quote, sharing intelligence for the purpose of enabling offensive coalition strikes and, and providing logistical support for offensive coalition strikes, including by providing maintenance or transferring spare parts to coalition members flying warplanes engaged in anti-Houthi bombings in Yemen, unquote. Now, that definition is legally safe in Ukraine, probably, since there's no evidence the U.S. is helping Ukraine target Russia inside Russia's own borders. Although we might be, it's not known, and there was just a major strike inside Russia's borders. If there's any evidence that the U.S. Uh, participated in that, that could trigger uh, that, that provision right there. But the second definition reads, quote, quote, the assignment of United States armed forces, including of any civilian or military personnel of the Department of Defense, to command, coordinate, participate in the movement of, or accompany the regular or irregular military forces of the Saudi-led coalition forces in hostilities against the Houthis in Yemen, or in situations in which there exists an imminent threat that such coalition forces become engaged in such hostilities, unless and until the president has obtained specific statutory authorization in accordance with Section 8A of the War Powers Resolution, unquote. Now, as the Intercept has previously reported, U.S. Special Operations personnel have indeed played an active role in Ukraine under a presidential covert action finding. Despite the ceasefire lapsing in February, though, the Saudis have yet to resume bombing. Anti-war advocates believe that the Saudi hesitation flows from a concern that opponents of the war in Washington would get an upper hand at the first report of civilian casualties from a new, renewed campaign of bombing in a war that has stretched on for some seven years now. The Saudis continue to maintain a blockade of Yemen, strangling the country's economy and producing a humanitarian crisis of biblical proportions. And part of this, uh, Emily, feels like fatigue. What's your point today? Christmas time can be really lonely, whether we're in a pandemic or not. Thankfully, most people believe we're on the other side of COVID now, but ahead of Thanksgiving, economist Bryce Ward crunched some post-pandemic numbers for the Washington Post. Quote, our social lives were withering dramatically before COVID-19, Ward found. Between 2014 and 2019, he added, time spent with friends went down and time spent alone went up by more than it did during the pandemic, more than it did during the pandemic. Ward was looking at the Census Bureau's American Time Use Survey. According to the data, right around 2014, weekly alone time started to increase significantly. As Ward notes, our average weekly time spent with friends had actually been stable in the years leading up to 2014. That time period is really critical when you dive deeper into the numbers. It was right around 2014 that adult social media use started to stabilize. According to Pew, the percentage of adults who say they use at least one social media site 
smoothed out starting in 2014, oddly enough, it's around 62%. Deloitte compared American time use in 2003 with 2017 and found we spent more time watching TV and less time working out. So we're spending more time alone, more time watching TV, less time with friends and family, and less time exercising. These numbers are complicated, sure, but that is obviously a recipe for cultural chaos, especially with big changes happening over short periods of time. So who's the culprit here? Stagnant wages? Division? The sexual revolution? Maybe a combination of everything? Culture versus economics is an age-old chicken-or-egg question. Earlier this year, Seth Stevens-Davidowitz did a good overview of what we know about, those, uh, about that question in a New York Times essay. Quote, a study of thousands of millionaires led by researchers at Harvard Business School did find a gain in happiness that kicks in when people's net worth rises above $8 million, he wrote, but the effect was small. A net worth of $8 million offers a boost of happiness that is roughly half as large as the happiness boost from being married. It's a little cheaper option. Arthur Brooks studies happiness full-time. Quote, one of the greatest paradoxes in American life is that while on average existence has gotten more comfortable over time, happiness has fallen. He wrote that in The Atlantic back in 2020 and added, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, average household income in the U.S. adjusted for inflation was higher in 2019 than has ever been recorded for every income quintile. And although income inequality has risen, this has not been mirrored by inequality in the consumption of goods and services. Meanwhile, domestic government services have increased significantly. For example, federal spending on education, training, employment, and social services increased from 2000 to 2019 by about 30% in inflation-adjusted terms. So if we shift back one more time, stay with me here to Stevens-Davidowitz in the Times, we, might, we see what might explain this great paradox that Brooks has identified. Davidovitz, Stevens Davidovitz wrote, the activities that make people happiness include, happiest include sex, exercise, and gardening. People get a big happiness boost from being with a romantic partner or friends, but not from other people like colleagues, bad news, Ryan, bad news for me too, children or acquaintances. People are consistently happier when they are out in nature, particularly near a body of water, particularly when the scenery is beautiful. So on that note, yes, we also know Americans are having less sex now too. My old editor, Tim Carney, wrote a wonderful book on all of this a couple of years ago called Alienated America. Tim pointed partially at the rise of the gig economy over the last decade. Think Uber and Lyft and delivery services and even independent contractor jobs. Quote, a hyper-individualized capitalism is currently taking us toward a world where workers are available when needed, but no lasting attachment is formed, wrote Carney. Work can't form an institution of civil society because work is no longer a place or a company or colleagues. It's a series of gigs. With no lasting attachment and no long-term investment, young people are less likely to find mentorship and training. They're less likely to find the work stability that is fitting for family life. We all have agency as individuals. The right is correct about that. But it's also true that corporations are preying on our vulnerabilities in new and significant and specific ways. Consolidation of monopoly power is giving consumers less power to push back too. The government and big ed saddled generations with insane levels of student loan debt. Amounts people say make them put off marriage and home ownership. By the way, we're also working more than we did in the past. This is a bleak economy and it's a bleak culture with more alone time, less marriage, sex, and children. At least on that front though, 
Brooks's paradox can become empowering if looked at from the right vantage point. The saga of the rail workers has put on full display the corporate strategy of making normal life almost impossible for employees. The good news is we can say no to extra TV, no to toxic food, no to dating apps, no to Netflix, and no to more time alone. It's not easy at all to do that, and some of us definitely have a whole lot more free time than others. But with our spare time, whether it's a lot or just a little, we can go outside. We can date to marry. We can hang out with friends and family. There's no downplaying the importance of living wages and material stability. But while we fight the political class on that front, we can also push back in our own lives as well. It's definitely not easy, but in some very big ways, it is free. Ryan, the loneliness numbers before the pandemic, if you look at the Thank you, everybody. Have a great, not weekend. Have a great have Wednesday, a, have a great because we'll be back here on Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> See you then. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.